Good morning, Squim. We do have much to be thankful for, don't we? In the book of Matthew, the storyline picks up where the, the nation's in an uproar uh, between the Romans and John the Baptist and all that going on. Um, Jesus and the disciples had had a run-in with the Supreme Court and the General Conference, you know, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, <clears throat> earlier in the chapter 16. And Jesus knew that his time was coming to a, you know, a, a conclusion fairly soon. So in verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi and asked his disciples, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And you know, he picks his words very carefully. He calls himself the son of man. And they said, some say that you are John the Baptist, some say Elias, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he says unto them, but whom do you say I am? And Simon Peter answers and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also to you, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever shalt thou loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Thank you, John. And Mike, you have been just really faithful in helping us to do music, especially during this time of pandemic, and we appreciate that. Thank you so much. And Bill for reading. This afternoon, we will finish our Hear the Word project, as Bob reminded you, at least until the days start getting shorter again, and we hope that doesn't happen for a long, long time. Boy, it seems like this has been a long winter, hasn't it been? But now, we're looking forward to two summers and a winter. That's good. So we're going to finish the book of Isaiah. I have enjoyed hearing you read it. I've learned some things that I would not have learned otherwise if I'd have just been reading it. Just last week, I did. And we have entered into a communal experience dating back thousands of years. The experience of God's people coming together to hear his word read. Our scriptorium project will continue on through the summer, an opportunity for each one of you to engage with God's word in a very different kind of way, to sit and copy a portion of it. Um, eight of you have participated in that so far, and two from the church that meets here on Sunday, the Heart of Jesus Church, they participated as well. And uh, so I encourage you to give that a try. I think you'll find it a much more exacting process than coming here on Sabbath at the end of the day and hearing it read. 
And thanks, Grace and Darlene, for, for providing such a nice place for us to do that. It sure is nicer than most of the scribes had down through the centuries as they sat in dungeons copying the Word of God so that we could have it here today. And by the way, um, if you would like to read Scripture, and a number of you have done it, uh, talk to one of the elders because uh, they usually will ask somebody to read in their stead on Sabbath morning. If you would like to read on Sabbath, just call them up and say, hey, I'd be interested in reading some Sabbath, and uh, you can have a chance to do that. I think it would be great. And from time to time, we may listen to longer portions as we did today. As Bill read from Acts chapter 15, I, re I asked him to read that. He said, that's a long chapter. I said, yeah, I know. Would you read that for us? And I think we're going to come back to that story in just a few minutes. So we'll get there. This morning, we're going to think for just a, a minute or two about how we even understand the Bible. And I have a reason for that, uh, for sharing this with you this morning, because the next couple times we are together, I'm going to talk about an issue that is somewhat controversial as far as biblical understanding is concerned, but it's apropos to us here in Squim. So this is a, a bit of a setup, all right, to prepare us. There are more Bibles uh, sold in the world than any other book, you know that, even though it's never made it to the New York Times bestseller list. It is the all-time bestseller. In fact, it has outsold its nearest competitor by a factor of eight. Its nearest competitor. Take a guess. I mean, what do you think the second best-selling book of all time might be? Hmm? Well, just think. Who do you, which book do you think comes in second? Had anybody, had anybody thought, well, maybe it's the, 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 the quotations of Chairman Mao? Did anybody think of that? Well, that's what it is, the quotations of Chairman Mao. Since 1966, there's been a billion copies of that book produced. There's been eight billion copies of the Bible produced. Isn't that amazing? That's not to, to assume that they're all evenly distributed over the earth, though, right? There are places in the world today where you can be imprisoned, even killed, because you have a copy of the Scripture. Uh, it's a capital offense to be caught with one in your possession. But here in America, we have them in abundance, at least for now. There are many more sold than any other book. Uh, but I would guess that it's probably one of the least read books as well. I don't have any statistics on that. We have a lot of them, but we don't read it very often. And I think probably it is the book with the greatest potential for misunderstanding other than calculus textbooks and stuff like that. Even though it's God's word, it has great potential for misunderstanding. Why is that? Well, partly because the Bible is a collection of ancient writings which requires us 21st century readers to enter into the lives of the writers who lived thousands of years ago when life was very, very different, even unrecognizable to us moderns. And to understand as much as we can the culture and the customs and the way of life of these ancient peoples. And the potential for misunderstanding also comes because of our assumption of what God's written word really is. We believe, and it's correct to believe, that the Bible is God's word, right? But not exactly. 
The Bible is God's message. It's his thoughts, but it's men's words. It's kind of a combination deal. And this is one of the things that makes the Bible fundamentally different from other so-called sacred books like the Quran, say. You know, Muslims say that the Quran is an exact, they are, it is the exact words of the, of the angel Gabriel spoken to the prophet Muhammad. Gabriel to Muhammad, dictated word for word. So there's no need to interpret the Quran because they are the exact words of Allah. You just read it and do what it says. To change them even slightly, to translate it, for example, from Arabic into English, to translate those words is to rob them of their authority. It is to defile them. The Quran, in this, in this sense, is what we would call a dead book, a static book. The Bible, on the other hand, was written by human beings using their own words under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit to reflect what God wanted people to know. In other words, the Bible was already translated by the prophet who got it from God. The Bible writers were not God's pen. They were his penmen. And you can read that quote in your bulletin Today, the message of God couched in the language of human authors. And Peter says, you know, holy men moved of God, spoke. Holy men spoke. They were moved by God under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Which is why the specific language of the words really is not an issue with the Bible. It's why modern translations broaden our understanding of God. We have discussions over which translations of the Bible are better, which ones are more authoritative. And sometimes those discussions can be misleading because some versions are very accurate when it comes to a word-for-word translation, like the New American Standard Bible. But they don't read as easily, and the sentence structures are sometimes more difficult to follow because the words are translated very precisely. And other versions, like the New International Versions, are maybe, maybe not quite so precise in the translation of individual words, but the flow of thought is clearer, and so it might be more accurate in conveying the thought that God had in mind. Some versions, like the New Living Translation, they are intentionally translated using words that are easily recognizable to most modern readers. Did you know that the average American reader today reads at the sixth grade level? That's why all the popular American magazines today are are written at that level. You compare a contemporary Time magazine article with one written, say, in 1970, there is a world of difference. A world of difference. And you go all the way back to when when, uh, Thomas Jefferson was writing and some of those people, wow, they could really write and we barely understand it. So the New Living Translation was written at about the 6th, the 7th grade level so that most people can understand it. Because what good is it to have a Bible translated very accurately into words that you don't understand? Well, it might be good to have it for a study Bible, but it might not be so much good for reading. So modern translations don't defile our understanding 
of God, they broaden it, they help it to grow. Another potential misunderstanding has to do with the idea that the Bible is God's instructions to us for living, but not really. People sometimes say the Bible is like our owner's manual for doing life. Well, we really ought to lay to rest the metaphor of the owner's manual. Think about it. How often do you read your owner's manual for anything? Except when it goes bad, right? Except when the toaster starts to burn the toast. Then you get it out and you read it. You try to figure out what's wrong. The Bible is, is not an owner's manual and it's not an instruction book. Of course, there are some very explicit instructions in there. Are there not? Uh, case in point, the Ten Commandments. Those are very, very obvious. But most of what's in the Bible is story. The story of, of, of how God interacts with people. Story more than instructions. Stories of how he works with people, how he loves them, how he guides them and communicates with them and disciplines them and redeems them, all in the midst of an ongoing war between good and evil. Which means that the Bible is our story too. It's not just their story, it's our story. Alden Thompson, who teaches uh, theology at Walla Walla College or University, uses the metaphor of a case book rather than a code book with a peek ahead to the final chapter so that we can keep in mind that it's all going to turn out good, which, for which I am very thankful. And so because it is primarily a case book and because it is primarily the story of God in relationship with people, it's not just a collection of timeless truths kind of floating unanchored in space, not connected to anything. Of course, there are timeless truths in there. We call them principles. And as we read it, we encounter them. But the reason that the principles are true for us today is because they were true for somebody else first. Somebody else. Real living people living in a real world, in a culture very, very different from ours. In a time far removed from ours. And when we forget that, when we either don't know or understand the culture or the context of the story, then it becomes pretty easy to misunderstand what God is trying to say to us. As we've heard Isaiah read over the past weeks, we've sensed a little bit of that maybe, at least I have. We hear some of those chapters and we wonder, what in the world is God trying to get across here? But that's partly because we don't understand really what was going on in the original story. And over the years, some people have used the Bible to push their own agendas. They've used the Bible to, and, and they've, they've made it say what they want it to say. Now, we've never done that, have we? How many of you have ever heard somebody say something like, you know, I've spent a lot of time studying this lately, and I've read what a lot of people have to say on it, but in the end, I've just decided to get back to the Bible and take it as it reads. Have you ever heard anybody say something like that? You know, a person like that might mean very well, but the implication is that there is a way to read the, read the Bible which is agenda-free, without bias, and that may, while most people maybe have a bias, there are some people who are somehow just able to read it for exactly 
what it says, completely free from any outside influence. And that's just not possible. Because guess what? We all have a frame of reference. Every one of us do. We all have opinions. And we tend to think that our opinions are right. It's like Anne Lamott says, everybody thinks their opinion is the right one. If they didn't, they'd get a new one. But the Bible is a dynamic book. It is a living book. It comes not only with it in its own box if you buy an expensive one, it comes with the Holy Spirit even if you buy a cheap one. The Bible, by its very nature, requires interpretation. It's an open-ended book. And so, God sends the Holy Spirit to help us when we read it. And he gives us something else that helps us too. And that is the community of believers. Both are essential gifts, and we must receive them if we to really understand the truth that God has for us in his word, the Holy Spirit and the community. Let me illustrate what I mean about the Bible being an open-ended book. Okay? Think about Exodus 20 and verse 8. We all know this verse. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Now that's a plain statement of Scripture, is it not? It's an instruction even. It's not a story, it's an instruction. But guess what? It requires interpretation. What does it mean to work? Who's going to determine that? What will it mean to keep a day holy? And how will you know if you've done it? Somebody's got to decide. One of the best ways to understand what the Bible is saying to us here is to understand what Jesus believed about it, how Jesus interacted with it, how Jesus lived it. This is the idea that Paul had in mind when he wrote the opening statement to, to his letter to the believers in, in, in uh, the Hebrew believers. He wrote, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us how? By his son. By his son. If you want to understand God, then listen to Jesus. Watch Jesus. Well, in the, days of the, in, in the days of Jesus, the ancient rabbis understood the Bible to be open-ended. And they understood their role, the rabbis did, in the community to be uh, the students of it. They were to study it, they were to read it, pray over it, and then they were to make interpretations. And that's exactly what they did. And it's interesting, by the way, I think I've shared this part of it with you before, how you got to be a rabbi in the days of Jesus. And I am indebted to an author named Rob Bell for some of this. He wrote a book called The Velvet Elvis, Repainting the Christian Faith. Very insightful understanding about the culture of the day. But to become a rabbi, Every Jewish boy, every Jewish boy started out on the path to become a rabbi. Every boy attended rabbinical school until they were about 10 years old or so. And in the rabbinical school, what they did was to memorize the Torah, 
which was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Why did they memorize it? Because they didn't have any scrolls at home. Scrolls were very expensive, you know that. Even smartphones, they didn't have smartphones with the Torah on it in those days. And so they had to memorize. And they studied what the famous rabbis of the past and of their own day had to say about the Torah. In other words, they studied the commentary on it. Then at about age 10 or so, the rabbis would select the very best of their pupils who would go on to the next level of education. Guess what happened to the rest of them? They flunked out. They were sent home to work at the family trade. Fisherman, carpenter, you know, uh, accountant, whatever it was. But the very best ones continued to learn and study and memorize. They went on to learn and memorize the, the, the writings of the prophets and the wisdom literature and the Psalms and the commentary until they were about 14 or 15. And then the class would be called again. And most of them washed out. They were sent home. But a few of the best were selected to continue. And eventually, the very best and most promising students would attach themselves to the local rabbi and become his disciples, which means, in a very condensed explanation, you followed your rabbi everywhere, everywhere he went. You watched how your rabbi lived. You watched how he interacted with people, how he interpreted God's words. You stuck to your rabbi like glue. In fact, there was a blessing that would be read over the head of a disciple when he became attached to a local rabbi. They would say, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi which meant you stayed so close that the dust kicked up by his sandals as he walked along would cover you, would get all over you, see. And during this process, the disciple would learn and study, and it was the job of the rabbi to weed out all the ones that he knew were not making the grade. He would weed them out and send them back home to work the family trade until only the creme de la creme were left at the top. See, And these few would eventually become rabbis in their own right and gather disciples of their own. Now you know that Jesus was a rabbi too, don't you? He was a rabbi, but he never went to rabbinical school except for a few days at age 12 when he went to the temple. We know that because Jesus worked as a carpenter. He was a builder. He, he did the family business. He practiced the family trade. Then where did he learn Torah and the prophets? He learned them from his mother. We know that because Jesus' finely developed sense of ethics reflect some of the very ideals that formed the songs that Mary sang. And we know that her grasp of scripture was remarkable. So imagine that for a moment. The greatest rabbi who ever walked the earth learned Torah from a woman. But the rabbis were the interpreters of God's word. So let's look at the Sabbath commandment again. A rabbi would essentially put actions into two categories. 
the thing that the rabbi permitted to be done on the Sabbath and the things that he forbade on the Sabbath. Now it's important to remember here, a good rabbi was driven by one primary motive, one great desire, and that was to get as close to God as possible. A good rabbi's whole motivation in life was to live as close as possible to the way that he thought God wanted him to live. And so the rabbis became role models for the community, of course. And you can imagine that different rabbis would, dis would disagree on some things, just like we do today. One, ra one rabbi might say, for instance, that you could walk so far on the Sabbath day, but no farther. If you went any farther, that would become work. Another rabbi might permit you to walk farther on the Sabbath day, but he would forbid you to do other things that some other rabbi might permit, like to shuck grain and eat it while you walk along. Different rabbis had different sets of rules, which were really lists of what they permitted and what they forbade. A rabbi's set of lists and rules which was that rabbi's interpretation of what it meant to live the Torah based upon many years of studying and the rabbinic interpretation of the past, all that was known as the rabbi's yoke. If you followed a certain rabbi, you followed him because you believed that rabbi's interpretations were closest to what God intended in the scriptures. And when you became a disciple of that rabbi, you were said to take up that rabbi's yoke. Remember now, the intent of a rabbi having, having a yoke wasn't only to interpret the words correctly, it was to live them out in order to get close to God. That was the goal. Now, think about Jesus. Jesus was a Jewish teacher. He was a rabbi living in Jewish culture among Jewish people. One day, at the end of a discussion with other rabbis, Jesus turns to the people and he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What's Jesus doing here? Well, he's inviting people to embrace his understanding of the scripture. Take my yoke upon you, he says. Had nothing to do with getting in a pulling harness next to Jesus like a pair of oxen. It meant embrace my understanding of the scripture. Become my disciple. And he wasn't just inviting the top of the class graduates. He was inviting everybody to take his yoke. Jesus believed that everybody could, could become like he was, could become his follower. Rabbis would spend hours discussing with their students what it meant to live out a certain text of scripture. If the rabbi thought his disciple had missed the point, you know, he would say something like, you have abolished Torah. If your rabbi said that to you, that was not a compliment. If uh, it meant you had really blown it and you get too many of those, you would not make the next cut. But if a student got it right, if the rabbi thought his disciple really grasped God's intent, he would say, you have fulfilled Torah. You remember what Jesus said in one of his sermons. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish 
the law or the prophets. In other words, you think I'm really blowing it, don't you? But I am not. In fact, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus came to put flesh and blood on the words of Scripture. Now, most rabbis taught the yoke of some well-respected rabbi who had come before them. So if you visited a local synagogue, you might know the rabbi there taught the yoke of rabbi so-and-so. You would know what to expect from that rabbi. But every once in a while, a rabbi would come along who was teaching a new yoke, a new way of interpreting Torah. That didn't happen often, so when it did, it was a rare event. Imagine, some new rabbi was coming who claimed that his way of understanding God's word was closer to what God intended than all the rabbis that had come before him. What do you think might be the first question people would ask about that rabbi? How does he know? How does he know? You know? How does he know he's right? How do we know he's an orthodox rabbi? How do we know this rabbi isn't crazy? What would the Biblical Research Institute say about this rabbi? Well, there were some protections in the, in the day. One of the protections for the rabbi was that two other rabbis with authority would lay their hands on the new rabbi and essentially they would validate him, almost like an ordination. They would be saying, we believe this rabbi is trustworthy. He has authority to make new interpretations. Now you think of what happened at Jesus' baptism. John the Baptist was the most powerful, most respected teacher of his day, at least among the masses of people. Crowds flocked to hear him. He did not mince words. He was a real straight shooter. And then one day, John starts talking about another rabbi who will come after him, who's already among the people, he says. They don't know him yet, but he's already on the scene. And John starts saying publicly that he isn't even worthy to stoop down and untie the sandals of this new rabbi. And then the very next day, Jesus comes to where John is preaching, and John looks up, and he points, and he says, look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man comes after me, has surpassed me. And then what happens next? Jesus is baptized by John, and there's a voice that comes from heaven. What does it say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Two voices of authority confirming Jesus. Later that voice will come from heaven and it will not only say, this is my beloved son, it will say, listen to him, listen to him. It's interesting. When you read through the gospel accounts of the arguments that Jesus has with the religious leaders, and there are many, they often come back to this issue of authority. Well, where did you get your authority? They demand to know. Why should we listen to you? What well-respected rabbi has laid his hands on you? Do you remember what Jesus said? Well, where did John the Baptist get his authority? Hmm. Isn't that interesting? And remember, when Jesus would teach in the local synagogues, people would say things like, he teaches with such authority. Where did he get that? People wanted to know, see. Now imagine if some new rabbi were coming to town who had a new yoke, a new perspective on the Torah, who was said to have authority, this is a really a rare thing. It may not happen in your lifetime. 
So if it did, you would go out of your way to hear what that rabbi taught. And when he taught, he would sometimes couch it in terms of the old and the new. He would say things like, you have heard it said thus and so, but I say to you this. He would be saying, you have heard that other people interpret the verse this way, but I'm telling you what God's real intent is here. And this is exactly how Jesus sometimes preached. You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, it's not, just, it's not enough to re refrain from wrong behavior. What God is really after, Jesus is saying, is a just society of people who have nothing but their neighbor's best interest in their heart especially women. Jesus often entered into discussions with people over different interpretations of Scripture because that's what the rabbis did. Here's an example, Matthew 19. Some people are engaging Jesus in a discussion about divorce. This is where we sometimes take a statement of Jesus and we lift it out of its context and we kind of make it float in space, untethered, but when Jesus talks about divorce in Matthew 19, he is entering into one of the eight great debates of his day. You know, who is my neighbor? Marriage in the afterlife. Healing on the Sabbath. The greatest commandment. Can the Gentiles be saved? Divorce was one of those, those debates. So he is interacting with a specific tradition of other rabbis of his day or of the past who have said specific things about divorce. Two of the greatest rabbis of the day were Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. Hillel tended toward a looser interpretation of Scripture. Shammai tended toward a more fundamental, more strict approach. For instance, Shammai taught that it was always wrong to lie, period. You just never lie. Hillel taught that sometimes lies were okay. All brides, he said are beautiful on their wedding day. Rabbi Hillel was the one who coined the golden rule. He said, that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That is the whole Torah. The rest is explanation. Go and learn. Jesus quoted Rabbi Hillel with slight modification. He said, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up, the law and the prophets. These two great rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, they had specific yokes in regards to divorce. So when people ask Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, one of the things they wanted to know was, who are you going to side with here, Hillel or Shammai? People are asking him to enter into a current, ongoing discussion. And when Jesus answers, he sides with one of those. He sides with Shammai, whose yoke on divorce is pretty tough. His standard is pretty lofty. And that's kind of unusual because Jesus usually sides with Hillel. But in this debate, he says, no, I side with Shammai. 
And then he gives his explanation, which is to understand God's original intention for marriage in the first place. He goes back beyond the time of Moses all the way to Eden before the fall. And that, that's, a, that's an interesting principle of biblical interpretation, by the way, that Jesus goes all the way back to Eden. This is God's original intention for man and woman, he says, but he's especially concerned for women because divorce was terribly crushing on women of his day, terribly crushing, and it still is to some degree in our day as well. But to grab a few lines from Jesus and drop them down 2,000 years later on somebody without first entering into the world in which they first appeared can lead to misinterpretations of what God meant. So the whole point is, Scripture has got to be interpreted. It's just not a bunch of timeless truths floating in space. And in the days of Jesus, this was done primarily through the process of rabbinic discussion and debate. And the rabbis had a name for the process of permitting and forbidding and, and making interpretations. They called it Binding and loosing. Binding and loosing. To bind something was to forbid it. To loose something was to permit it. And when a rabbi gave his disciples, his followers, the authority to bind and loose, it was called giving them the keys of the kingdom. So you now think about the story that, that John just read for us. Jesus and his followers have come to Caesarea Philippi. And you remember, too, at this point, how Jesus got his disciples in the first place, right? And this is just so cool because most rabbis got their disciples from this strict educational process of winnowing down, rejecting the ones who didn't make the grade. But Jesus gets his disciples from the ordinary working class, fishermen, accountants. He's walking along the lake one day. He sees two brothers, Simon and Andrew. They had been, both of them, to rabbi school at one point, but they had failed to make the cut, and they would be fishermen till the day they died. But one day Jesus walks up and he says to them, what? Come. What? Follow me, which is the technical term a designated rabbi would use to designate that a potential follower had made the grade. He would say, come, follow me. Jesus calls the not good enoughs, the fishermen, the tax collectors, ordinary, not good enough people, and he says, you come and follow me. You could be like me. And they follow. And Jesus is still calling them not good enoughs, by the way. You know why? It's all he's got. It's all he's got. But he says to you and me, I know you can be like me. I know you can. You can take my yoke upon you. And in this story, Jesus has taken his followers to a pretty incredible place. Caesarea Philippi was where they worshiped the goat god Pan. It was very sexually immoral worship. It was a hotbed of paganism. There was a cliff in Caesarea Philippi with a crack in it. 
And people believed that crack was where the spirits from hell would come and go from inside the earth. And they called that crack the gates of hell. And Jesus is there with his followers. As good Jewish boys, they would never have gone there. But here they are with Jesus. It's a 28-mile one-way walk from Galilee. Jesus tells them that when he builds his new worshiping community, not even the gates of hell will be able to stop it. That even pagans like these would someday join his movement and become his followers because nothing will stop his church. And then he tells them this. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Wow. Jesus is giving his common, ordinary followers the authority to make new interpretations of Scripture. He is giving them the authority to say, hey, I think maybe we might have missed it here on this particular issue. I think we may have been wrong here. I think maybe this is the way it really ought to be. But he's not only giving them authority. He's saying that when they wrestle with it and debate it and discuss it and make decisions, the God of heaven will somehow come among them and be part of that process. The Holy Spirit promises to come when followers of Jesus do this in community with open hearts and humble spirits. Jesus expects his followers to be engaged in an ongoing process of deciding what it really means to live in Scripture. And right at the beginning of the Christian church, we see it happening And that's the story that Bill read for you this morning in Acts chapter 15. The first Christians find themselves having to make huge decisions about what it really means to be Christian. Remember now, these first Christians were all Jewish. They ate kosher. They recited Jewish prayers. They kept all the feasts. All the men were circumcised and they followed a Jewish Messiah. But then all sorts of non-Jewish people started believing in Jesus. People who didn't eat kosher and keep the feast, who didn't circumcise their baby boys, and they started coming into the church. And some of the Jewish believers expected these Gentile believers to start being Jewish. And it was a legitimate debate. It started to become a crisis. So here's what they did. They convened a council in Jerusalem. And after hearing all sides of the issue, and after hearing how the Holy Spirit had been so wonderfully poured out among the Gentiles, they decided to bind some things and loose some things. They forbade the eating of food sacrificed to idols, the eating of blood, the eating of strangled meat, and sexual immorality. And they loosed the requirements to keep the feasts, and to be circumcised, which was a big deal in that day. I mean, how much of the New Testament is concerned with that deal? But they did it. They had to make some new interpretive decisions about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, and they did it in community and with the influence of the Holy Spirit. They made interpretations which affected what it looked like for millions of people to become Christians for for hundreds of years into the future. 
And you can almost hear one of them standing up and saying, hey, I remember the day when Jesus gave us the authority to do this. And when they finished, they sent that letter out to all the churches in other parts of the world, and they used a particular phrase. I don't know if you caught it when Bill read it. They said, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. It seemed good. It seemed good. I mean, they've just made this monumental decision in the life of Christianity, and that's the best they can come up with? It seemed good? But there's a kind of humility in that phrase. It's almost as if they are saying, we don't have the absolute infallible word of God on this. We don't claim an unerring arrogance on this, but we do have the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and this is where we think he's leading at this time. And with that, they step up, they execute their responsibility, and there's a sweet spirit of joy over the whole thing. With that word, seem, they acknowledge they may not have it nailed down for all time. In fact, later on, Paul will write to the church at Corinth. He walks part of this back. He says, it doesn't really matter for a believer if a, foo, if a, if a piece of meat has been offered to an idol or not. It makes no difference. In other words, there's a progressive understanding as God works among his people who come together with humble spirits and open hearts. You can only do that kind of thing if you're familiar and literate in Scripture. You've got to know it. You can only do that kind of thing if you understand Scripture is a living book, not a dead letter, and that the Holy Spirit is an essential component. And you can only do it in community, where the safeguards of fellow believers diminish the pride factor, the tendency to believe that my way of understanding is the right way of understanding it. You know, most people in history, you know this, uh, heard the scripture read in a room full of people. They heard it read and then they wrestled with it together. They discussed it in community. So that if one person went off the deep end with some kind of new interpretation, there was a safety net to bring him back or her back. And in the synagogue, the people knew the text by heart. They saw themselves as taking part not only in the discussion of the moment, but in a conversation that had been ongoing for a thousand years. And that's why, for us, Sabbath school classes are so critically important. And small group classes that meet in, in homes and by Zoom, they are so critically important. Together, we learn what it means to live God's word. And we provoke, and we challenge, and we help, and we encourage each other to do that, to live God's word, and maybe come a little closer to God. The rabbis had an old metaphor for this wrestling with scripture. It's the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel in Genesis 32. He Struggles all night wrestling with this unknown assailant. He's exhausted, and in the morning, his hip is injured. When he walks away, he's limping. Because of this, the rabbis said, 
when you wrestle with the text of Scripture, you walk away limping. Some people have no limp because they've never wrestled. But those who limp have had an experience with the living God. Binding and loosing, wrestling and limping, because God has spoken.